Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome to another episode of Better Words. Michelle, I almost don't even care how you are because I just want to talk about the Heartstopper TV show. I'm so excited to talk <laughs> about this. Yay! Oh my God. <laughs> but you know, hope you're good. Well, I mean, we're all busy. We're all doing stuff, but I feel oh, like... I mean, let me just spill that I had an absolute admin nightmare today. Have you ever had a situation where you've had to do something with your car at main roads, which you've put off for months because it's always a pain. And then you go through all the processes, you redo the form that you stuffed up the first time, all this stuff. I got there, I got my ticket, I waited. And then she was like, no, you didn't need to do any of this. Oh my God, that's the worst. And I just was like, oh, that's just two hours of my day. That was an absolute waste of time. Like there's nothing that I gained from that experience. It just wasted my day. Oh, that is so so annoying. (laughs) Just just frustrating. Anyway, that's, and and like, it's just annoying because I took time out of my day working on, you know, editing our podcast episode, this very episode. So just... Mm-hmm. anyway and I mean everyone can relate to those annoying things so yeah we've all been there <laughs> okay so as you said before we want to chat about Heartstopper. <laughs> yes we do I feel like my first question to you has to be how excited were you when all of a sudden Olivia Coleman was on the screen as Nick's mom I know I know I turned it because Jack was in the room he wasn't really watching it with me Mm. I was like oh my god that's so cool like that's such a big get because it still feels like it's a bit of an indie production like even though it's a Netflix production the whole thing sort of still feels quite indie like it's new like actors and yeah I just young talent like yeah and then to have such a amazing actor on like Olivia Coleman because like I didn't give any thought to the parents honestly and there's like no other parents really in the show and there's like one or two teachers and I and then just all of a sudden like he gets in the car and Olivia Collins his mum and they have so many cute scenes where she drives him home from where she drives Nick home from school oh man so cute I loved it also the voice on the speaker that's like welcome back to Truem boys it sounds like Stephen Fry is it oh I have no idea I didn't really think about that one how cool would that be and then Olivia Coleman was in and I was like awesome this is like I haven't we haven't started watching it yet but the new season the final season of Derry Girls is airing in the UK at the moment and the very first episode has a surprise Liam Neeson moment. No way. Oh my God. I'm so excited to watch Dairy Girls. And they, they were just like, obviously once it aired, they were talking about how they had to keep it a big secret. And I feel like the Olivia Coleman thing probably was it's, like that too. Yeah. Of like has to be a big secret. And it just, yeah. Yes, anyway, I saw Alice post on yeah. Instagram and Joe, the actor who plays Charlie, his was like one of the top comments. And he was like, finally, I can tell people. And now his Instagram bio is Olivia Coleman is my mother-in-law or something like that. Super cute. So, oh my yeah. God, I love them all so much. I'm obsessed. I'm so obsessed. And I, I know I got onto our Better Words Instagram account and the entire feed it was all heart stopper. All heart stopper. <laughs> it has been everything. all I followed heaps of people on that account and it is everyone has been posting about it and it's so nice. And I just think it's so funny how I saw a meme that was like smiley me watching Heartstopper, sad, realizing I finished too soon, and then like smiley starting watching again. And I was like, oh, so funny. And then I finished watching it and I was like, when do I rewatch it again? Like, I know. I probably finished watching it on late on Saturday night. It is Tuesday. I legit almost started watching it again yesterday. 
<laughs> and I might like just rewatch it again this weekend. It's so Do cute. It. It's so bingeable as well. Yes, it's it so really is. Good. You go through so quickly and I Okay, so let's talk let's like talk about okay, it instead of just gushing. So let's talk about Heartstopper. Um I'm gonna link to our original Heartstopper graphic novels discussion, um, yes. which is featured on the episode where we talk to Alice Oseman. About Loveless uh, mainly, but we did talk actually, to her about Heartstopper. Yeah, I know, but it was actually like two years ago, which is like blowing my mind. I know. Um, and then to hear Alice say, which I posted a clip to our Instagram in case anyone has it wants another little sneak peek to say like, oh yeah, so it follows Nick and Charlie and like uh, my agent didn't think anyone would publish it and then it's like, bam, she self-published and then like <laughs> it got picked up by traditional publishers, it's like such a bestseller and now it's on Netflix like, oh, insane. Also, can we just say trans actress playing a trans character, like here for the representation absolutely amazing all the actors are so wonderful and they're so sweet and they're just exactly what you think they're going to like what the characters will be like I was just like my face hurts from smiling at you while we talk about this (laughs) I know and like I just think there's so many things as well that it is really true an adaptation to the graphic novels if and I'm sure everyone will agree with me but there were so many little tiny things. Obviously, the story is very, very, very similar. But there were so many little tiny things that, like, when Charlie is, like, putting on his cons, I'm, like, lo- I was, like, losing my mind because, like, the thing with their feet and the cons and, and oh, and, like, Nellie seeing Nick's dog. And I was, like, how did they even perfectly cast a dog? Like, it's so <laughs> cute. The only, okay, if I have to give one criticism which no, literally no one's asked me for. Can I guess? As, because my one it? tiny thing is that I guess like also in the illustrations and everything that Nick didn't is not like a massive like bulky rugby guy. Oh, like he's not no. that much bigger than Charlie. Real like as a, which yeah, is one of those things that's like, but when it's real people, it's less than like in an illustration. Yeah. So that in every other way. absolutely yeah. perfect. But it just, I was just like, and I, I also feel like they kept putting him in shirts that were really small to make him seem like really big. Bigger. <laughs> um, no, my thing was just like, you know, the scene in the snow, which is so oh, cute and yeah. romantic. And I love it. Part of me was like, okay, why is it sunny? It would never be that sunny when it's snowing. Yeah. I mean, it's a TV show. <laughs> was like, it was obviously fake snow. I know. I, but... I know. But, yeah, I was just like, it's England. It's going to look blue. It looks horrible. I know. <laughs> it would have but... looked so – It like, and that's just something that I literally never, ever would have picked up on until I lived in a place where I saw snow because, as you know, until we lived in England – I'd never seen snow yeah. and I had no idea that when it snows, it's like fully, it's like an overcast, like dark sky. Something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there can be some, but like, it's just, yeah, I was like, it's so pretty and sunny. This doesn't make sense. And snowing. Yeah. <laughs> and snowing. But, but it's my favorite scene as well because like, it's just so cute. It's so cute. And it is a very bright and colorful show that like the it's whole so way pretty. through. Yeah. It's so good. It's sunny every day and every time anyone looks at each other it's like rosy and beautiful and so sweet and the little illustration graphics are excellent as well oh my god oh my god and I doubt there are many I don't know I want to say I doubt there are many people who are coming to this and have not read Heartstopper but I guess there will be but then also the people who are listening to us have this discussion? Uh, pr- have probably, probably read the graphic novels. Read Heartstopper. Yeah. Um, but if by some miracle you've not, um, I loved, and I was telling Jack this, that like obviously all the little illustrations are Alice's illustrations. Yeah. And I just really enjoyed that the work was still present. It just added this so, such a beautiful connection. And I think. It's a brilliant adaptation because it is so clearly Alice being involved every yeah. step of the way. And I think that's that's when adaptations work best, isn't it? When it's it's fully like a collaboration and seeing it come to life yeah. and 
it's very true to what was there. And I suppose that's an interesting thing with adaptations that obviously this is a graphic novel series. So Alice has previously drawn what she imagines all these characters look like. It like tears like hair little flips under his beanie. I'm like, oh my God, you're so cute. I can't deal. <laughs> like, you know, we've we've seen this world in those illustrations and that is a lot more to go off than creating a TV show or a movie, I think, than, pro- than lots of other, like, what's the word, prose novels, like, that have no yeah. illustrations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just like normal books. Standard, regular normal books. Yeah, like normal <laughs> books obviously don't have that. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. 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 Oh, it, okay. Obviously, if you've listened to 10 minutes of us talk like this, you'll know that we love Heartstopper. It's amazing. I can't wait to see more of it. It's just and and like you said, like just rewatch it endlessly. It's just I know. I can tell it's just. I work four like seasons like right now. Oh, <laughs> I need it. I know. <laughs> so cute. Wait. Also, um, I just want to shout out Tori, um, Tori Spring in the Heartstopper series, always lurking in the back with her long dark hair and fringe and a cup of water. <laughs> God bless her. So good. <laughs> I know. Oh, so yes, we love it. And I I kind of want to suggest we keep this short and sweet because it will just be more of us saying, I loved this. I know. Otherwise. We'll just keep saying we loved things. And right after I say this, one last thing, we will go to our wonderful interview. But shout out and anyone, here's your excuse to rewatch if you didn't pick up when Isaac was reading a copy of Radio Silence when they were at the bowling alley, I'm pretty sure. He's always got a book under his arm, Isaac. Love it. But he was reading oh Radio Silence. When I they love were stuff like this. And Alice always puts in references to, other, to yeah. other books. So obviously Nick and Charlie started out in Solitaire yeah. because Tori is the main character of Solitaire. So it's just very clever the way she always has little references. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. Excellent. Go watch it. We're going to rewatch it. Yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> Our guest is a writer and musician. She reviews books for publications, including The Guardian and the TLS, specializing in books from and about East Asia. Her essay, Portraits, about her experiences growing up mixed race also features in East Side Voices, Essays Celebrating East and Southeast Asian Identity, published in Britain. As a violinist, she has played with Jessie Ware, Pete Tong and the London Contemporary Orchestra and on various film soundtracks, including The Two Popes and The Matrix Resurrections. And today we are discussing her beautiful debut novel, Woman Eating. So welcome to the podcast Claire Coda. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We cannot wait to talk about woman eating. I mean, the basic concept of the novel about it being like about a vampire. Oh, can't get enough. So, but to start us off, will you please tell us a bit about the book? Because it has been described as a literary vampire novel. So please tell us a bit about it and what readers can expect from woman eating. Okay, I'm really bad at actually describing the book. Um, (laughs) Even though I've had to do it quite a few times now, um, it's like still the worst thing (laughs) for me to do. Elevator pitch, man, it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) I think because it's about so many things, it's really hard to know what to focus on. And also I think... Uh, when I say the word vampire, people kind of get like a certain image in their mm. minds or a yeah. certain type of book, you know. Um, and so I usually try to find a way to explain what the book is, but leaving the vampire part till the end. But it's actually <laughs> really sorry, we've it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's about Lydia and uh, she is... Uh, a young mixed race, so she's part Malaysian, part Japanese, part British vampire who is trying to make it as an artist in the contemporary art world in London. But most of the book, I guess, is about her relationship to food and yeah, she spends most of the novel quite hungry. Yes, yeah. that she does. <laughs> um, can relate. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also a lot about, I guess, her ever fracturing relationship with her mother too. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Her mother and also her kind of, um, I guess, her ethnic identity. Yeah, that's very central. Um, but also with humans and friendship and um, relationships and kind of navigating that for the first time. Yeah. And so like with all of that, you know, it's at the most simple point, you know, it's about like her place in the world and like where she fits in, um, which is what so much fiction is about. But the real twist here, of course, is that she is a vampire, which mm-hmm. is so interesting. And I I hope you won't mind. I actually described the book to a friend of mine a couple of days ago. I said, I'm reading this excellent book. It's called Woman Eating. It's like one of those sad millennial books but she's a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we mean that in the nicest possible way as well, but the guardian also described it as an original take on millennial angst. And mm. I think both of us at times just forgot Lydia was a vampire because there yeah. is so much there that is central to what we all go through and I guess like Mm -hmm. not to be like too existential about it it's also very much like what does it mean to be human what is humanity (laughs) as well in Mm -hmm. in a really like good way but it just asks a lot of questions about that as well which I really enjoyed but you know why then make her a vampire and not just another human millennial woman going through. Yeah, because there does almost like there's, you know, there's enough else, as we've said, with her mother and her art and everything. There's enough. She didn't have to be a vampire. So why is she a vampire? So actually it's really interesting that you forgot that she was a vampire while reading it because I kind of almost forgot that she was a vampire while writing it as well. And I wanted her to be like a very human vampire. Um, I wanted her to be very relatable to you and very flawed and kind of like the most disappointing vampire you could imagine really um, <laughs> you know, she she's quite powerless in a lot of ways and she's vulnerable in a lot of ways but the vampire element um I suppose I was quite interested in the vampire as a figure just because it's it's a creature that's kind of like it is like inherently split between two halves so all vampires are kind of demonic, but they're also human. And we're once a f- like a full human, you know, like that's the essential part exactly. of their story as well. Exactly. And they still have a human body and they still have human memories. And that really interested me. Um, yeah, that, that really interested me. But also uh, the fact that vampires can't eat food. Um, and that's like this... I mean, it's so important. Like, food is so important to humans, obviously, from the sense of, like, you know, it's what we need to survive. But also, it's, like, a form of communication, I think. It's how we, like, like we bond over food and, um, like, learn things about ourselves and our families and ancestors through food. And for me, as someone who's half Japanese, food was really important um, as a way of, like, learning about my heritage and learning about my mum as well um because like my mum she grew up in Japan her life was so different to my life growing up so when she tells me like a story about her childhood it's like I can imagine it to a certain degree but then it's set in this country that I don't really know much about like I went when I was four and then the next time I went was when I was 19 so I didn't really like know Japan very well so, like, the setting of my mum's life was very kind of, like, foreign, I guess. And I could connect with my mum and her past through food. And the vampire was, like, a really interesting figure to me because Lydia, um, the vampire in this novel, she can't do that. You know, she can't connect to her, like, cultural heritage through food. She can't explore that. She can't, like, communicate in that way. And so in a sense, she's like, I guess, like kind of perpetually foreign wherever she is, you know, because her diet is different no matter where she is. And as an Asian, food is always used as as a kind of, I guess it's what a lot of like racism centers around is food. 
when when it comes to Asians, you know. Like recently, for instance, my mum told me that she doesn't like walking down a certain road because um, there are builders that are working outside a house and they call her chow mein. And I find it really interesting. Like, that's really horrible. That's obviously. horrible. Really horrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. But it's like, it's so, food is always the thing that's used to kind of like other yeah. Asian things. So. You're right. It is food that's used to other people yeah. in that way. Yeah. Where they, and I guess we see Lydia having that problem. Yeah, there's a few scenes with drinking her blood in her little <laughs> flask, which, which I also love the image of her just going to school with like a little thermos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, and not, obviously she can't tell her classmates what she's having for lunch. And yeah, and everyone assumes that she's eating some like strange foreign thing that they would think is disgusting and which I suppose to most humans she is uh- <laughs> I didn't I I obviously I picked up on a lot of the exploration of race mm-hmm. in there but I never considered that element like in the playground all that sort just of stuff and it's, as we're discussing yeah. this I'm just like wow like you've woven yeah. it through so well and you know as you were talking about knowing your mum better through food, it brings up the point before of that disconnected relationship she has with her mother because her mother, um, I mean, how how best would you describe, I think in, in, the, in the book, it, it's sort of like she's sort of displaying symptoms of dementia but mm-hmm. but she's it's like she's turning back into a human almost or wanting to be that way but she's bringing up sweets and things that, the nurses are writing down like these are things that she mentioned do you were these things that she ate as a child and Lydia's like I I don't know like I can't Mm. there's that element that's missing that lack of heritage through food and I guess yeah definitely in western cultures we we don't have that same level of like for us but yeah I do think that we lack that so much that like in a lot of other cultures that making of traditional food is something that gets passed down generation to generation to generation and like mm-hmm. in like our white culture there's nothing really like that yeah it's um, not the same yeah it's definitely but, not so like the closest yeah. that it comes in my family is like my grandma's christmas pudding recipe like yeah like my grandma's but it is so funny the whole thing with food because even I think I think even I t- took something else from it that Michelle didn't because this is going to sound so dumb but mm. I'm gluten intolerant and so there are certain bits where Lydia is talking about <laughs> not eating at social events and having different things in her lunchbox and everything and I was like, this is so weird. And I messaged Michelle and I said, this is really strange because I'm just like, I feel the same way. Because again, different and there's all these layers, but food is so central to all of our lives. And so when you're eating something different, it's like a big, it's a really big deal. And so, oh, so interesting. So yeah, Mm -hmm. the vampire, did you you just do take it on in such an interesting way, um, bringing in how she was turned, she still grows up. The way that the vampire is built in literary fiction and stuff is there are these certain tropes that we hear and certain things, and this does bring a new take on that. Was it fun to sort of play with that classic vampire figure? Yes, (laughs) it was definitely fun. Like I really enjoyed um, the parts where Lydia kind of embraces her vampire side a bit more. But yeah, again, I guess it comes back to the the fact that I didn't really think about, and I never really considered this a vampire book. Um, and it almost it's... isn't in a way, because like you say, like when you say vampire, it brings into image a certain type of <laughs> yeah. book. Yeah, and like yeah, and, like yeah. gothic mansion, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, or even exactly again. Like I the, think of what I we do in the shadows now. Like very I know. Like, <laughs> like I keep thinking of all these other vampires and almost every time one of us says vampire, a different image comes to my mind. And you can't help compare different vampires, but like I love the Kiwi version of what we do in the shadows, how they're just like living in a flat share and it's hilarious and they're like normal guys who want to go to a nightclub. And then you have like Twilight where they're like not allowed to go outside um, and they live in like the coldest part of America or something so there's no sunlight. And, you know, there's all these funny things that 
you know, make up like the classic traits of vampires. Like Lydia does wear modest clothing and has to put on sun cream because Mm. otherwise she'll get really badly sunburnt. And like, just imagine that those elements must have been so interesting to add in to this otherwise not vampire book. I'm, I guess, someone who, I mean, I watched Buffy when I was growing up. um, And I say when I was growing up, I watched it recently as well. Um, I do but... love the like you can tell that you're a fan in it like I, <laughs> I never watched it but I, I do love you can see that it's it's not just like oh I'll add that in there because it's a vampire thing like <laughs> it just made sense that she would watch Buffy because I was watching Buffy at the time <laughs> so yeah. I could just I don't know um, I mean Lydia to me she kind of like became almost like a friend I created and so it just, it made sense that she'd do things that I could like relate to, you know, and I could imagine like texting her and like seeing what episode of Buffy she was on, you know, and stuff like that. Um, but other than Buffy, I haven't really ever read or watched anything vampire related before. And so that was quite a nice thing for me, kind of coming to the vampire without any kind of influences and so actually once I finished the novel I did try to read Twilight to um just make to just make sure I wasn't accidentally like paying homage to anything but um yeah I think you're safe there read much of it but um I remember yeah. reading Dracula for the first time and like I had to keep reminding myself that this is where those tropes came from because I'd read it and be like oh I can't see myself in the mirror oh, yeah and then I was like oh wait no this is this literature is like the point at which this was created but it's become so ingrained in our culture that you wouldn't even really have to have read any other vampire books to know that oh they don't have reflections and oh they can't go in like there's things that it's just in your consciousness of like these are the myths of the vampire um and I find that so funny and something else I really enjoyed about bringing the the mythology in there was the way that when she does drink blood and so she drinks animal blood and at one point she does find a duck and then I really loved the way that then that meant that she could feel elements of that animal's life and experience those moments. And then the hungrier she got, I mean, maybe I'm probably butchering this explanation, but it was like, as that, (laughs) as that, um, as her appetite came back, it was as the, the life of the animal was sort of waning. So with, Mm -hmm. I remember with the duck, it was like, she could she was talking about feeling the duck's final moments and like that's so cool like that's such a cool way to look at the vampire what i kept thinking about with um like with some of those descriptions and everything was that that's not often what we see with vampire stories is that if if they drink animal blood it's like it's not quite enough because you're supposed to want human blood and that when you drink human blood most of the time because people will show up dead um vampires tend to go for like lower members of society and like by your description like theoretically that may not be a nice experience to then like relive as the blood is like going through their system and so that was really interesting to me as well that like to your point michelle if you wanted to (laughs) if that was like part of the thrill of it you'd want you'd want to kill like a cool person <laughs> who had an interesting yeah. life you know wow we're getting that. really dark on this episode I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> please so, don't judge us too harshly got, I just got really interested by the, yeah i got really interested by the vampire part of it because michelle and i are not fantasy readers or anything like we said i think the last time i read a book with the vampire was twilight when i was like 14 um <laughs> the last time I read one was really good and it was the Radleys by Matt Haig and are that they was another one that, that yeah they are oh. but it's another one where it's <laughs> yeah. like the fact that they're vampires is is not necessary I mean it's sort of point of that novel but it's it's mm-hmm. an ordinary suburban family living in 
like North Yorkshire. And I remember like the, the blurb was like, they listen to Radio 4 and they're, very, they're, they're just trying to, like, they're just trying to stay under the radar and the kids don't know they're vampires. And then one mm. night at a party, the teenage girl attacks and kills someone. And then suddenly they're like, oh shit, we have to tell everyone, like, we have to tell the kids mm. they're vampires and we have to sort this out now. It's a really good book. That for me, basically, I wanted Lydia to be like someone who had a lot of empathy and who really was trying to be good. And so the fact that it was kind of like, I guess she's very aware of like cruelty um, and the fact that whatever she eats is going to be, it's going to be like a moral question as well as just a question of nourishment. And that partly came from, so at the beginning of the book, I can't remember what it's called, is it an epigraph? You know, those little quotes? I I don't know the technical term for that either, but yes, I know what you mean. (laughs) I'm going to say it's an epigraph, but the epigraph at the beginning of the book is by Lafcadio Hearn, who was a writer, he was Greek, Um, he became a Japanese citizen, and he's kind of, he's loved in Japan. My mom actually told me that when she was growing up, uh, she heard so many of his stories that she thought he was Japanese. And um, when she found out that he wasn't, I think she was really, really shocked. Like, (laughs) it was such a part of, like, her identity growing up. But anyway, yeah, he's known for uh, writing on Buddhism and Japanese folktales and ghost stories and things. The quote at the beginning is from an essay he wrote on Buddhism, and it's about how basically whenever we eat, like whatever we do in life, we're constantly like causing suffering. And yeah, I wanted, I wanted an, I, I guess it's not that I consciously wanted an element of that to be in the book, but that definitely um, is something I think about a lot, I guess. And I guess would say that, maybe I'm Buddhist but I don't know that feels like a really big <laughs> but um but it definitely it fed into like kind of Lydia's I guess the way she thinks about the world and the way she thinks about food and eating and living um there's always kind of a balance between suffering and uh whatever the opposite of suffering is <laughs> yeah and that also I think fed into like how I uh, wrote the vampire so like it fed into like I guess the word is law it fed into the vampire law of the book and yeah so that's why she feels so much she feels the life of the the thing that she's eating but also it's death but the book actually is um, I find it really interesting that it's been called a millennial novel um, because I think that's a very western construct yeah um, <laughs> yeah um, so I review books in translation mostly in fact almost exclusively most of the literature I read is actually from most of it's from Japan um, some of it's from Korea and uh, actually recently I reviewed an amazing um, collection of short stories it's called father maybe an elephant and mother only a small basket and it's by Gogu Shyamala I don't know if I've said that right but um such an interesting title Um, but most of the books I read are from Asia and in that case it was an Indian collection of stories as well and most of the time there are supernatural elements or like I guess what we would call magic realism as well or there are characters that are ghosts or you know that shapeshift or there's so much I guess like magic um that is in literary fiction from a lot of Asian countries. And it doesn't kind of mean that those novels are kind of like put in genres. So Mm. if you get like uh, a novel with a ghost in it in Japan, it's not necessarily going to be a ghost story or a horror book. It's just a novel. And that kind of like lack of boundaries, I guess, and the lack of pigeonholing was partly why Lydia is a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) um I think that really influenced me the kind of like um the way that the supernatural was just let in to these real situations uh like novels that deal with very real things and at the same time there isn't really any distinction between uh generations and I think that's partly because sorry I'm going off on a massive tangent here I'm loving it go for it yeah. Um, so in Japan, I'm of the Heisei generation. 
Um, and generations that are defined um, by which emperor was ruling at the time of your birth. Whereas in the West, it's more defined by like what we grew up having or what we grew up not having. Yeah. Um, and so I think in the West, because it's defined in that way, like generations can be kind of like uh, stereotyped or kind of like lumped together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, whereas in Japan, it's like, oh, it's just because I was born under this emperor. So, you know, it's 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 like less defining I guess yeah yeah the, the interesting thing about um woman eating I guess is it's been called a millennial novel um there's actually so much I could say about this actually true, <laughs> the millennial novel thing is so interesting because it isn't it <laughs> like oh god in the last few years it's just like just about every book is like oh wonderful like mm. millennial novel and like all these things and you're right like gen- we they're so defining all these generations mm. and I feel like it's only, I don't know, in the last 10 years or something, we've just gotten a lot more defining about it to the point where now, yeah. you know, I mean, everyone forgets about what, like, Gen X and, mm. like, the damn millennials and the cool Gen Zs on TikTok and, like, OK Boomer and, like, all of that stuff. And, and <laughs> it's just a lot all the time. Mm. And all these millennial, like, sad girl millennial mm. <laughs> books or something. Yeah just mean that they're about someone our age and for me they're just contemporary novels like they're just contemporary character driven novels um but just what you were saying both saying there about like how we stereotype things it I think that actually speaks again we're getting into some bigger issues here but I think it speaks to the broader way that we like memify everything like Mm -hmm. everything is condensed into a meme including like our generations and stuff so it feels like we have to squash everything and flatten it into this really like this is a really easily digestible description of xyz yeah it it is really interesting I I, we, we usually talk about publication a bit later and we will go back to your story of publication later but I'm interested to know then like how do you feel about the way that we do have such regimented genres, I guess, in in Western publishing, when because we don't have any insight really into Asian mm. publishing, and you know, reading translated fiction is like a that's a real blind spot of mine. I really need to to you know read more widely in that respect. So I'd love to know, like, yeah, how do you feel about the way that we do really? pigeonhole everything into a genre (laughs) in the west um so I think one thing that I've only really thought about recently is the fact that the kind of genre which isn't really a genre of the millennial novel seems to only be given to women so I can't think of a single male author who is called a millennial novelist or compared to Sally Rooney. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like, it's Sally Rooney and it's, you know, Sorrow and Bliss and Dolly Alderton. And I'm trying to think of a few more, but like, you know, those mm-hmm. kind of books with a girl draped over something um, with her hand mm-hmm. over her face, looking so like distraught and yeah. unhappy with her life. And you're right. Men don't have that. <laughs> Men our age are still just allowed to read nonfiction by personal trainers and airport thrillers. Yeah. 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 So it's really interesting that I think male novelists are kind of avoiding being defined by their generation, even if they're writing about like a sad millennial man. Um, (laughs) That just is. I would love to read a book about a sad millennial man. I don't think I have yet. (laughs) As long as it doesn't include like Bitcoin or NFTs or anything, I'm fine. But I feel like it would have to if it was a sad one. Not to not to memify or stereotype anyone. Oh, I know. We're going around in circles. But yeah, so that's really interesting to me. Um, And I've kind of been trying to work out like why that is. And I wonder whether it's partly because something that does define our generation is Me Too. So like the stories of women have actually been something that 
has defined this generation. You probably shouldn't complain about the fact that women's stories are being platformed because I don't think it's a necessarily bad way. Yeah. But it's just so fun to be cynical as well and and ask the questions about (laughs) why that, why why are male novelists allowed to be male novelists? Yeah, I think that's a valid point. Definitely worth thinking about. Yeah, I'm curious, skipping into your publication experience with, Mm. I don't know, like agents or publishers or whatever with this, was there discussions about like, oh, well, we're going to have to call this magical realism or what do we call this book you've written, Claire? Because she's a vampire and that throws off our... our ideas my publishers have been amazing for that they've just kind of got it that it's not it doesn't really necessarily fit into any box um but maybe also bits of it fit into quite a few boxes which makes it quite confusing um but they've got that and it's been something that i think they see as really important and I think they they understand that if it was just kind of put into the horror box, for instance, yeah. um, a lot of like people who would, this is a really weird sentence, who would find the book because it's in that box um, would be disappointed because yeah. it's not really a horror book. And same with fantasy. I don't think, is it fantasy? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't think, I mean, um, it's not fantasy and it's not horror. You know, there is all of that. At the same time, there is a bit of that in there. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad that they have understood that and they've taken it kind of um, the UK and US, both uh, publishers recognise that it is literary as well, which is great. But I think the main issue has been kind of them communicating that to, for instance, the press. Um, Yeah. And yeah, I think that's really, that's where the difficulty kind of... I can imagine, um, because I work in publishing, how getting some like these like key points about what this book really is, getting that across. But I mean, I think they've done a good job because I read the book, like the title is excellent. And I remember reading the blurb and I was like, oh my God, Michelle, we have to read this. Like this sounds The UK cover is so clever. I love the colours. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's got like, is it like a nectarine or a peach, like cut in half, but it's got like what looks, oh, an apple, but veins, like it's, it's so, it's so clever. And I can also imagine the covers meeting with your publisher going, no drop of blood anywhere on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that that was said at some point. (laughs) The cover design in the UK it was it was such a great I felt like I could really trust them because my editor Sarah Savitt was I mean she just knew exactly what the book was she knew I don't like it was almost like she was like in my brain and (laughs) like even the editing process like she was just incredible she knew exactly what I was trying to do yeah she's she's a great editor and when it came to the cover she also knew what she didn't want it to be and that was really important um she knew that it wasn't a book that would only appeal to people who like vampires and she knew that it was a book that um was very much about human I know that sounds really weird because it's not about human but I mean she is a human (laughs) but um so yeah the, the cover I really felt like I could trust the team with the cover it was really Cover designers are geniuses. I have no idea. Constantly creating something out of nothing to create such amazing covers. Oh, I admire them so much. Um, To skip back to the start of this story, um, (laughs) we would love to ask you a bit about um, your journey to publication. Obviously, we've talked about once, Mm -hmm. like the process once you've got your book deal and before the book hit shelves with a bit about your lovely editor and the cover and all of that. But um, will you tell us a little bit about the before part of that and how you got your book deal? So I wrote the book in 2020 and it was after almost a year of the pandemic and I'm a musician. So the pandemic for me meant, it's quite hard to describe what it meant, but basically the music industry kind of disappeared overnight and that's not really even an exaggeration like one day we were having like gigs and sessions cancelled like okay we should cancel these sessions so there's no session next week um 
And then I would be texting my friend and be like, oh, this session's been cancelled because of this virus. How crazy. And then literally the next day, I remember getting a an email from the orchestra, London Contemporary Orchestra. And they were like, actually, like, I don't think we're going to be able to do anything for like the next year. And it was like, oh, my God. Like, that for you that early on? Because, I mean, the thing with all is like the un, like not knowing I think because um orchestras have to kind of plan so far in advance yeah and there's a lot yes. at stake if they're planning things that then don't go ahead but that orchestra um is just they're so lovely and so supportive and you know they had like um like meetups on zoom every week and they even arranged for like a a kind of um like a lecture on like sound recording and stuff. It was really, they were really lovely and really supportive. Um, but yeah, overnight, basically the music industry disappeared and that is very different to like, for one, of course, that's the financial side of things, you know, you suddenly have like no job and there's also like a kind of, I find it really hard to kind of describe, but I'd say it's almost like, like a spiritual side or it's almost like yeah because you can't be creative was, and perform and yeah all of that. like yeah. over the pandemic when I was talking to to musician friends uh a lot of them said it was kind of like we'd like lost our god or something um and yeah. it was like or like lost our voice because it is a way of communicating and it's something that I think all of us have done for so long as well and then for that to suddenly go that's like, it was quite a shock. And there were friends of mine who, you know, weren't even able to like touch their instruments and stuff. Yeah, I think psychologically it was like, yeah, really yeah, hard to explain, but intense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so over the pandemic, I was doing like a little bit of music here and there remotely. So I uh, recorded a video game soundtrack in my pajamas in my living room. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> and um you know I I collaborated with a couple of friends but yeah most of the year it felt like weirdly empty and I think a lot of musicians were kind of in a sense like grieving it was really strange like you know just yeah it was a really strange time and I wrote the novel quite suddenly quite quickly towards the end of 2020 when I had like three pounds left in my bank account (laughs) and after this year of just like no music and and no music to me also I think because it was such a hard thing to go through like psychologically also meant that because I didn't really feel like a complete person without Mm -hmm. music it meant also I wasn't like wasn't really seeing any friends I mean I don't think many people were anyway because it was yeah But um, it was was just me and my partner and my cat. That was kind of like it. That was my life at the time. I know we all had quite a small world. um, Yeah, exactly. I I was going to ask actually if you wrote it in in lockdown or during lockdown because it feels it feels like some of that isolation seeped into Lydia's life as well, and something that I guess comes up time and again in vampire novels and also in this is the fact that if you don't die and yet you want to live within the world visibly at some point it's going to become obvious that you are not aging or you are not mm-hmm. at the same pace as everyone else and so she talks a lot about not getting close to people not being friends knowing yeah. that that would be the thing and so it did make me wonder whether that was I don't remember whether it was actually a lockdown, but I lived most of my life in 2020 as if it was a lockdown. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't remember. It was like September 2020. I mean, I don't think I went out at all while I was writing the novel. Yeah. Like, I think it was just all written in one chunk um, of time. I actually yeah. love that because I think that it comes across within the book as well and it, it brings in this, kind of almost suffocating, isolating sense that Lydia is going through. Like, it, it it really feels quite palpable. And I think also after a year of not really seeing friends, like, not seeing friends who 
aren't musicians but also not seeing other musicians um Mm. and a lot of my socializing is through music um even though that means like turning up to a studio and sitting down for six hours and not actually talking you know it's still like being in the company of other people (laughs) yeah Yeah, i think we all we all realized that didn't we when we were like oh actually i think for lydia uh with lydia i kind of she was kind of like going she goes through something that I think a lot of people have gone through uh, with the pandemic, which is kind of like learning how to be around people. Yeah. I don't know whether that actually came from my own experiences. I've, I've only just realized the parallels. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of the novel is really. Is what happens after we make you talk about the book for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of it is just her kind of um, learning to exist, I guess learning where she fits in and what she is and who she is and stuff. But yeah, so I, I wrote it and um, I sent it to Sam, my agent. And after that, it was really quick. It was, um, you know, he sent it out, I think, a couple of days later. Um, and then the next week I had meetings with, like, so many publishers and so many people. And um, suddenly I had to, like, talk again. <laughs> like, you must have been so relieved. Like publishing is a notoriously slow industry, and like you said, you started writing yeah, this when you yeah. had almost no money left. Yes, been like, oh, thank God! Like, <laughs> it was a relief, definitely, but also really um, disorientating and confusing. Yeah, um, sure. it was all in one go, and it was all very quick, also because it was just before Christmas. There were meetings with uh, multiple UK publishers, but then also film studios for the optioning um that sounds really weird for when um it was being optioned yeah um, I, it's a strange term isn't it optioning yeah. it's being optioned exactly. <laughs> yeah so it was like i think a week of of meetings with publishers and then a week of meetings with these film and tv producers and yeah, then it was america it was so exhausting and this was after a year of me not really oh, talking nothing. to yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I'm only just getting used to it now really um talking again yeah. <laughs> well you're doing great don't worry thank you so, um, how did you feel then actually getting the book deal good <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no it was it was a relief personally um but also um it was I I guess I've spent a long time as a writer kind of trying to work out where I should be where I can exist as a writer because because I'm half Japanese and because I review books um a lot of books from Japan um it's it's kind of like, uh, God, it's really hard to explain, but um, it's almost like I didn't really know which literary tradition I came from, um, particularly as so much of what I was reading was from Japan, but also in translation. So it was in English. Um, and it was kind of like, did I have, was I meant to like choose one? Um, I didn't know whether I was meant to write a novel that was actually like set in Japan or set in England like could I write a white character um did I have to write a Japanese character or did they have to be mixed like me so and those questions sound really stupid when I say them out loud because of course that doesn't actually it doesn't actually matter like of course I can write a novel set in Japan if I want to of course I can write a white character and I can set a novel in England but at the time it was like what would people expect of someone like me yeah what will people expect where should you fall and yeah. I guess it would all just come to whatever story came to you yeah and then the vampire came into my head and obviously it's got that kind of uh, dual identity already kind of inherently in it and it just kind of all fell into place and I realized I think at the same time I was writing woman eating I did realize that actually I wasn't, um, sorry, this is getting like really deep and personal, but (laughs) at the same time I was writing Woman Eating, I I realized also that um, like I 
my identity is mixed race it's not just like one thing one thing yeah Mm. so um and it doesn't matter that in Japan I'm different for instance like my identity is is a mixed race person not someone who is simply Japanese or yeah but at the same time like I yeah sorry this is like getting really deep no 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 I don't mean because (laughs) it's you know humans are all so many different things but that like Mm -hmm. not like being too Japanese somewhere or not Japanese enough somewhere else and everything like I think that's a really common experience for um, a lot of people in lots of different Mm -hmm. cultures everything so yeah the vampire part is a really interesting way to explore that though like not human enough (laughs) yeah yeah exactly yeah I'm Um, interested obviously you review books I'm interested whether that sort of played into your writing at all were you able to just sort of switch off because I know like I'm a very analytical person and sometimes I Mm -hmm. do get worried a lot about like you know expectations of things perhaps when in the point of creation you probably just need to try and go for it but did that experience reviewing books and knowing that maybe someone would review your work did that play on your mind at all? Thankfully not Um, and I wonder whether it was the context of it being the pandemic and just being so isolated yeah it just didn't it didn't even cross my mind it was just yeah and I'm really grateful for that because I think that would have been that would have made it really hard how Um, do you feel seeing reviews now for your for your own work (laughs) um it's quite strange um it's really nice that they've all been so positive so far um that's obviously like a big relief but um yeah it is quite strange and I'm finding it really interesting kind of seeing what parts of it are being picked up on and focused on and um so far I guess the parts of the book that are dealing with ethnicity and food haven't been picked up on so a lot of the reviews have been more kind of focused on the horror side and I think a lot of horror writers have been picked to review the book which is interesting but yeah yeah, they're opinion on this vampire book yeah exactly so I think um I'm kind of just trusting that over time it's going to balance out and there'll be people from like different types of backgrounds and with different interests reviewing the book oh I'm Um, so glad we could talk about so much of that on this then like (laughs) it's great to explore these things um, yeah, I mean, obviously the vampire part is in, very interesting, so sorry, but I've really enjoyed talking about <laughs> how the vampire thing reflects both of those other major things mm-hmm. in the book with her relationship with food and her relationship to her race. Yeah, it's so interesting. And just like Caitlin was saying that she could see parts of her own relationship to food in there, um, I, something, something that, but something that I really connected with was uh Lydia's relationship with her mother and not so much because I have a great relationship with my mum but um the the line that sticks in my head was the bit where she gets a a voicemail from the nursing home saying like we need to talk to you about something and she was like oh she's your problem now like I don't want to deal with this I really wanted the relationship between Lydia and her mum to be not neat I guess is the best way to put it um something that was like kind of more real than just a story um like just another story in the book um it's really hard I think when you start to feel like the parent and the parent starts to feel like the child my my parent I have like an amazing relationship with my mum like she's my best friend um so I really worry that people will read this book and think oh my god her mum must be like really horrible (laughs) 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 mum is amazing (laughs) yeah but um yeah that kind of like I think with Lydia and her mum it's like one part of her life with her mum is about her mum kind of declining and losing things and I wanted it to be kind of like the Lydia the thing that Lydia finds really hard is that her life is actually going in the opposite direction you know she's um 
what's the opposite of decline? Ascending. That sounds a bit weird. That's mm. a bit too extreme a word. But, you know, you know she... opposite of declining. She's like gaining she's... things, she's not losing yeah. things. She's like growing as a person, and her mom is yeah, she's building a new life. It's really. I think and it's like her mum's fault that she's a vamp. Like her mum is yeah. the one who created this life for her, this, this exactly. you know, never-ending life by turning her. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really interesting thing for her and I, I can understand that frustration, anger that she has then of thinking like, well, you're the one who who has left me in this situation don't yeah. just leave me now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a really yeah, interesting dynamic. She's kind of like very, one part of her is very grateful for her life, but then the other part of her is like, I guess with the vampire, like Julie turned Lydia into a vampire when Lydia was a baby. And the interesting thing about that is that when you're turned into a vampire, you're also dying at the same time, but her life is also being saved. So I wanted it to kind of be like this. It's really complex, I guess. It's Yeah. I liked, there was a bit when she said, when she turned me as a baby, mm-hmm. that she didn't know <laughs> if she would grow up to be like, and then like stop as, as an adult, or if she'd yeah. be stuck as a baby forever, and therefore she would have to take yeah. care of a baby forever. And I just think that that's kind of a funny image. Like imagine having <laughs> a baby <laughs> for eternity. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I I wanted both of the characters to be relatable as well. I think like it would be quite easy to see Julie as kind of a monster. And in ways, Lydia sees her mum as someone who's like a monster um but there's I wanted there to be tenderness as well and I wanted Julie to be relatable to especially in that bit where she's kind of um you know it's like a big sacrifice to turn a baby into a vampire and face the prospect of potentially having to look after a baby for centuries or a child for much longer than you know the 18 years that most parents get (laughs) or something (laughs) you know it's yeah so interesting and it is because obviously Lydia her mother is the one that turned her, but, you know, her mother didn't choose this either. Like someone else mm. obviously turned her. That's how vampires work. So, But, yeah, the kind of, like, the the idea of, like, villains and monsters really interests me. Like the, the idea that someone can be, like, totally bad was something that I wanted to kind of play with, I guess, in, in this novel. And that's the case with Julie, but also with Ben. Um, so before Sarah um, became my editor, I had another editor um, who left the publisher quite early on. And um, I feel really bad, like singling her out. But um, <laughs> she interestingly saw Ben as kind of like a bad person. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Which I, think, I think he is in a sense. I don't know whether I should, um, like, I feel like this is a spoiler. Is it? Shall I? I feel like we're pretty far in. I feel like it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but, um, obviously, Ben and Lydia sleep together and Ben's in a relationship with someone else. Um, and that editor got really angry with Ben and said, like, oh, that's, like, such a fuckboy move. I can see that. But then, interestingly, at the same time, um, when they sleep together, just before, Ben tells Lydia that his mom has just gone into the hospice. And that means, you know, it's the last few weeks of her life. Um, so he's been really vulnerable with her and he's told her this thing that's like so personal and she's the one that actually comes onto him like seconds later. Uh, taking <laughs> advantage of a sad yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, um, I find it... Doesn't it then that, yeah, yeah, there's no good or bad person in this situation. Exactly. But it's so interesting, like, how people read things differently and how she, my editor then, read Ben as, like, the bad one. And she was so, like, that's not fair. Like, Lydia should say something. Like, I mean, how does Lydia feel? But actually, like, it's much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, she's not wrong. That was a bad thing for him to also do. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It's, exactly. Yeah. It's not, yeah. I mean, it takes two to tango. And no one is all good or all bad. So, yeah. yeah, I was quite happy in a way because I wanted people to to really relate to and kind of root for Lydia, no matter what she did. Yeah. Um, 
So I wanted to kind of push the things that she did quite far and to make my readers kind of still be on her side and see kind of whether they would be. I hope they are. I mean, I still love her for everything that she's done. So, yeah. 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 I think mission accomplished. (laughs) Um, Also, I just have to say as well, uh, bonus points for having a pug in the story. Um, (laughs) Love that. Love that. Um, As a pug owner myself. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I could... um, I could definitely picture his little face in there. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your brilliant debut novel, Woman Eating, which is out now and available now. Can people find and follow you online? I am on Instagram, but I don't post much. And it's been kind of like... (laughs) Uh, in a battle about whether I should keep Instagram or whether I want people to find me, but I think <laughs> I'm okay with people finding me. So <laughs> wonderful. But I am on Instagram. Yeah, wonderful. Most people are in a bit of a battle about whether or not they just should just delete <laughs> yeah. Instagram. Um, sorry, what's your handle? Um, I think it's just Claire Coder. Okay, I don't know. That's I think a, it's, we always it's we always pop a link at the bottom well, anyway. It's all good. Yeah. Um, thank you again, and um, thank you so much yeah. for having me. It's been really lovely. Great to chat. Thank you for diving in and going on lots of different pathways with that. <laughs> so yeah, good. yeah, it was fascinating. <laughs> thank you for sharing all of that with us, um, and yeah, letting us in on more of the the stuff that I guess isn't the, the less of the vampire stuff and more of the. Mm. The race and the foods at that of the human yes, stuff great. the human stuff yeah wonderful thank you so much <laughs> thank you so much for having me it was really really nice to chat thank you for listening to better words you can chat to us on instagram at better words pod and follow me michelle at unfinished bookshelf and me caitlin at just a bookish babe if you liked this episode please share it with a book loving friend and leave a rating or review 